This is chapter 47 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 47. Somebody has said that in order to know a community, one must observe the style of its funerals and know what manner of men they bury with most ceremony. I cannot say which class we buried with most éclat in our flush times, the distinguished public benefactor or the distinguished rough. Possibly the two chief grades or grand divisions of society honored their illustrious dead about equally, and hence no doubt the philosopher I have quoted from would have needed to see two representative funerals in Virginia before forming his estimate of the people. There was a grand time over Buck Fanshaw when he died. He was a representative citizen. He had killed his man, not in his own quarrel, it is true, but in defense of a stranger unfairly beset by numbers. He had kept a sumptuous saloon. He had been the proprietor of a dashing helpmeet whom he could have discarded without the formality of a divorce. He had held a high position in the fire department, and been a very Warwick in politics. When he died there was great lamentation throughout the town, but especially in the vast bottom stratum of society. On the inquest it was shown that Buck Fanshaw, in the delirium of a wasting typhoid fever, had taken arsenic, shot himself through the body, cut his throat, and jumped out of a four-story window and broken his neck, and after due deliberation the jury, sad and tearful, but with intelligence unblinded by its sorrow, brought in a verdict of death by the visitation of God. What could the world do without juries? Prodigious preparations were made for the funeral. All the vehicles in town were hired, all the saloons put in mourning, all the municipal and fire company flags hung at half-mast, and all the firemen ordered to muster in uniform and bring their machines duly draped in black. Now, let us remark in parenthesis, as all the peoples of the earth had representative adventures in the Silver Land, and as each adventurer had brought the slang of his nation or his locality with him, the combination made the slang of Nevada the richest and the most infinitely varied and copious that had ever existed anywhere in the world, perhaps, except in the mines of California in the early days. Slang was the language of Nevada. It was hard to preach a sermon without it, and be understood. Such phrases as, You bet, Oh, no, I reckon not, No Irish need apply, and a hundred others, became so common as to fall from the lips of a speaker unconsciously, and very often, when they did not touch the subject under discussion, and consequently failed to mean anything. After Buck Fanshaw's inquest, a meeting of the short-haired brotherhood was held, for nothing can be done on the Pacific coast without a public meeting and an expression of sentiment. Regretful resolutions were passed, and various committees appointed. Among others, a committee of one was deputed to call on the minister, a fragile, gentle, spiritual new fledgling from an eastern theological seminary, and as yet unacquainted with the ways of the mines. The committee man, Scotty Briggs, made his visit, and in after-days it was worth something to hear the minister tell about it. Scotty was a stalwart rough, whose customary suit, when on weighty official business, like committee work, was a fire-helmet, flaming red flannel shirt, patent leather belt with spanner and revolver attached, coat hung over arm, and pants stuffed into boot-tops. 
he formed something of a contrast to the pale theological student. It is fair to say of Scotty, however, in passing, that he had a warm heart, and a strong love for his friends, and never entered into a quarrel when he could reasonably keep out of it. Indeed, it was commonly said that whenever one of Scotty's fights was investigated, it always turned out that it had originally been no affair of his, but that out of native good-heartedness he had dropped in of his own accord to help the man who was getting the worst of it. He and Buck Fanshaw were bosom friends for years, and had often taken adventurous potluck together. On one occasion they had thrown off their coats and taken the weaker side in a fight among strangers, and after gaining a hard-earned victory, turned and found that the men they were helping had deserted early, and not only that, but had stolen their coats and made off with them. But to return to Scotty's visit to the minister. He was on a sorrowful mission now, and his face was the picture of woe. Being admitted to the presence, he sat down before the clergyman, placed his fire-hat on an unfinished manuscript sermon under the minister's nose, took from it a red silk handkerchief, wiped his brow, and heaved a sigh of dismal impressiveness, explanatory of his business. He choked, and even shed tears. But with an effort he mastered his voice, and said in lugubrious tones, "'Are you the duck that runs the gospel-mill next door? Am I the—pardon uh, me, I, I believe I do not understand.' With another sigh and a half-sob, Scotty rejoined, "'Why, you see, we are in a bit of trouble, and the boys thought maybe you would give us a lift, if we'd tackle you, that is, if I've got the rights of it, and you are the head clerk of the doxology works next door.' "'I am the shepherd in charge of the flock whose fold is next door.' "'The which?' "'The spiritual adviser of the little company of believers whose sanctuary adjoins these premises.' Scotty scratched his head, reflected a moment, and then said, "'You rather hold over me, pard. I reckon I can't call that hand. Auntie, and pass the buck.' "'How? I, I beg your pardon? Uh, what did I understand you to say?' "'Well, you've rather got the bulge on me. Or maybe we've both got the bulge somehow. You don't smoke me, and I don't smoke you. You, you see, one of the boys has passed in his checks, and we want to give him a good send-off, and so the thing I'm on now is to roust out somebody to jerk a little chin-music for us and waltz him through handsome." "'My friend, I seem to grow more and more bewildered. Your observations are wholly incomprehensible to me. Cannot you simplify them in some way? At first I thought perhaps I understood you. But I grope now. Would it not expedite matters if you restricted yourself to categorical statements of fact? unencumbered with obstructing accumulations of metaphor and allegory. Another pause, and more reflection. Then said Scotty, I'll have to pass, I judge. How? You've raised me out, pard. I still fail to catch your meaning. Why, that last lead of yourn is too many for me. That's the idea. I can't neither trump nor follow suit. The clergyman sank back in his chair perplexed. Scotty leaned his head on his hand, and gave himself up to thought. Presently his face came up, sorrowful but confident. "'I've got it now, so as you can savvy,' he said. "'What we want is a gospel sharp, see?' "'A what?' "'Gospel sharp, parson.' "'Oh, why did you not say so before? I am a clergyman, a parson. Now you talk. You see my blind and straddle it like a man. Put it there,' extending a brawny paw, which closed over the minister's small hand, and gave it a shake indicative of fraternal sympathy and fervent gratification. "'Now we're all right, pard. Let's start afresh. 
Don't you mind my snuffling a little, because we're in a power trouble. You see, one of the boys has gone up the flume. Gone where? Up the flume. Throwed up the sponge, you understand? Thrown up the sponge? Yes, uh, kick the bucket. Ah, has departed to that mysterious country from whose born no traveler returns. Return? I reckon not. Why, pard, he's dead. Yes, I understand. Oh, you do? Well, I, I thought maybe you, you might be getting tangled some more. Yes, uh, you see, he's dead again. Again? Why, has he ever been dead before? Dead before? No. Do you reckon a man has got as many lives as a cat? But you bet you he's awful dead now, poor old boy, and I wish I'd never seen this day. I don't want no better friend than Buck Fanshaw. I knowed him by the back, but when I know a man and I like him, I freeze to him, you, you hear me? Take him all round, pard. There never was a bullier man in the mines. No man ever knowed Buck Fanshaw to go back on a friend. But it's all up, you know. It's all up. It ain't no use. They've scooped him. Scooped him? Yes, death has. Well, 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 we've, we've got to give him up. Yes, indeed. It's a kind of a hard world, after all, ain't it? But, pard, he was a rustler. You ought to see him get started once. He was a bully boy with a glass eye. Just spit in his face and give him room according to his strength, and it was just beautiful to see him peel and go in. He was the worst son of a thief they ever drawed breath. Pard, he was on it. He was on it bearing an engine. On it? On what? On the chute. On the shoulder. On the fight, you understand? He didn't give a continental for anybody. Beg your pardon, friend, uh, for coming so near saying a cuss word. But you see, I'm on an awful strain in this palaver, on account of having to cramp down and draw everything so mild. Uh, but we've got to give him up. There ain't any getting round it, I don't reckon. Now, if we can get you to help plant him, preach the funeral discourse, assist at the obsequies, Obsquies is good. Yes, that's it. That's our little game. We are going to get the thing up regardless, you know. He was always nifty himself, and so you bet you his funeral ain't going to be no slouch. Solid silver door plate on his coffin, six plumes on the hearse, and a nigger on the box in a biled shirt and a plug hat. How's that for high? And we'll take care of you, pard. We'll fix you all right. There'll be a carriage for you, and whatever you want. You just scape out, and we'll tend to it. We've got a shebang fixed up for you to stand behind in number one's house, and don't you be afraid. Just go in and toot your horn, if you don't sell a clam. Put Buck through as bully as you can, pard, for anybody that knowed him will tell you that he was one of the whitest men that was ever in the mines. You can't draw too strong. He never could stand it to see things going wrong. He's done more to make this town quiet and peaceable than any man in it. I've seen him lick four greasers in eleven minutes myself. If a thing wanted regulating, he weren't a man to go browsing round after somebody to do it, but he would prance in and regulate it himself. He weren't a Catholic. Scarcely he was down on him. His word was, no Irish need apply. But it didn't make no difference about that when it came down to what a man's rights was. And so, when some roughs jumped the Catholic boneyard and started in to stake out town lots in it, he went for him. And he cleaned them, too. I was there, pard, and I seen it myself. That was very well indeed. At least the impulse was, whether the act was strictly defensible or not. Had deceased any religious convictions? That is to say, did he feel a dependence upon, or acknowledge allegiance to a higher power? More reflection. 
I reckon you've stumped me again, pard. Could you say it over once more, and say it slow? Well, to simplify it somewhat, was he, or rather had he ever been connected with any organization sequestered from secular concerns and devoted to self-sacrifice in the interests of morality? All down but nine. Set him up on the other alley, pard. What did I understand you to say? Why, you're most too many for me, you know. When you get in with your left, I hunt grass every time. Every time you draw, you fill. But I don't seem to have any luck. Uh, uh, let, let's have a new deal. How? Uh, begin again? That's it. Very well. Was he a good man, and— There, I see that. Don't put up another chip till I, I look at my hand. A good man, says you. Pard, it ain't no name for it. He was the best man that ever— uh, Pard, you, you would have doted on that man. He could lamb any galoot of his inches in America. It was him that put down the riot last election before it got a start and everybody said he was the only man that could have done it. He waltzed in with a spanner in one hand and a trumpet in the other, and sent fourteen men home on a shutter in less than three minutes. He had that ride all broke up and prevented nice before anybody ever got a chance to strike a blow. He was always for peace, and he would have peace. He could not stand disturbances. Pard, he was a great loss to this town. It would please the boys if you could chip in something like that and do him justice. Here, once, when the mix got to throwing stones through the Methodist Sunday school windows, Buck Fanshaw, all of his own notion, shut up his saloon and took a couple of six-shooters and mounted guard over the Sunday school. Says he, no Irish need apply. And they didn't. He was the bulliest man in the mountains, pard. He could run faster, jump higher, hit harder, and hold more tanglefoot whiskey without spilling it than any man in seventeen counties. Put that in, pard. It'll please the boys more than anything you could say. And you can say, pard, that he never shook his mother. Never shook his mother? That's it. Any of the boys will tell you so. Well, but why should he shake her? That's what I say. But some people does. Not people of any repute? Well, uh, some that averages pretty so-so. In my opinion, the man that would offer personal violence to his own mother ought to— Cheese it, pard! You've banked your ball clean outside the string. What I was a-driving at was that the he never throwed off on his mother. Don't you see? No, indeedy. He give her a house to live in, and town lots, and plenty of money, and he looked after her and took care of her all the time. And when she was down with the smallpox, I'm damned if he didn't set up nights and nurse her himself. Beg your pardon for saying it, but it hopped out too quick for yours truly. You've treated me like a gentleman, pard, and I ain't the man to hurt your feelings, intentional. I think you're white. I think you're a square man, pard. I like you, and I'll lick any man that don't. I'll lick him till he can't tell himself from a last year's corpse. Put it there. Another fraternal handshake, and exit. The obsequies were all that the boys could desire. Such a marvel of funeral pomp had never been seen in Virginia. The plumed hearse, the dirge-breathing brass bands, the closed marts of business, the flags drooping at half-mast, the long, plodding procession of uniformed secret societies, military battalions and fire companies, draped engines, carriages of officials and citizens in vehicles and on foot, attracted multitudes of spectators on the sidewalks, roofs, and windows, and for years afterward the degree of grandeur attained by any civic display in Virginia was determined by comparison with Buck Fanshaw's funeral. 
Scotty Briggs, as a pallbearer and a mourner, occupied a prominent place at the funeral, and when the sermon was finished and in the last sentence of the prayer for the dead man's soul ascended, he responded, in a low voice but with feelings, Amen. No Irish need apply. As the bulk of the response was without apparent relevancy, it was probably nothing more than a humble tribute to the memory of the friend that was gone, for, as Scotty had once said, it was his word. Scotty Briggs, in after days, achieved the distinction of becoming the only convert to religion that was ever gathered from the Virginia roughs, and it transpired that the man who had it in him to espouse the quarrel of the weak out of inborn nobility of spirit was no mean timber whereof to construct a Christian. The making him one did not warp his generosity or diminish his courage. On the contrary, it gave intelligent direction to the one and a broader field to the other. If his Sunday-school class progressed faster than the other classes, was it matter for wonder? I think not. He talked to his pioneer small fry in a language they understood. It was my large privilege, a month before he died, to hear him tell the beautiful story of Joseph and his brethren to his class without looking at the book. I leave it to the reader to fancy what it was like, as it fell, riddled with slang, from the lips of that grave, earnest teacher, and was listened to by his little learners with a consuming interest that showed that they were as unconscious as he was that any violence was being done to the sacred proprieties. End of chapter 47